Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be exploring Gnosticism. With me is philosopher Jason Reza Giorgiani, who is the author of Prometheus and Atlas, World State of Emergency, Lovers of Sophia, and Novel Folklore. Welcome again, Jason. Always a pleasure to be with you, Jeffrey. Thank you. Thank you. And I feel the same. So, Gnosticism is, seems to be emerging everywhere. People talk about Gnosticism quite a bit, uh, but I don't know that many people know what Gnosticism really is, how it originated, and uh, what its history is. So we'll focus on that. That's a really good point. Uh, Gnosticism, or uh, the subject of the Gnostics, is one of these things that you know everybody talks about and very few people really understand. Uh, there's, uh, I think, a far to incohate and uh, overly broad definition of what constitutes Gnosticism. Well, the word Gnostic, spelled G-N-O-S-T-I-C, is sort of, I, I presume it's related to the word knowledge with the K-N. Yes. Uh, in ancient Greek, there are, well, there are a number of words uh, for knowledge, but two concepts of knowledge that are often contrasted with each other are uh, episteme, which is uh, scientific knowledge, Systematic, systematic knowledge, let's say. Um, and then gnosis is a sort of direct, more intuitive knowledge. Mm -hmm. And so that's, Gnostics basically, the word means direct knowing, intuitive mm -hmm. knowledge. Mm -hmm. Gnosis is direct or intuitive knowledge, and a Gnostic or Gnosticos uh, are people who um, exercise that faculty. Mm -hmm. And uh, this would be, in, in religious context, opposed to uh, the knowledge that is given through re revelation of scriptures and church authorities. That's right. Any kind of authority. And not necessarily only the form of authority that you find uh, in the revealed religions, although that's exemplary. And Gnosticism arises as a reaction to Judeo-Christianity. Um, but, uh, yeah, it... it inherently implies the rejection of uh, doctrine dictated by some external or hierarchical authority. Mm -hmm. Now, at the same time, it's important to emphasize that uh, to be a Gnostic is not simply to be a mystic. And that's a common mistake that's made, is um, an overly broad definition of the Gnostic as simply someone who is interested in a uh, more direct relationship with God or with the divine, mm -hmm. uh, a relationship with the divine unmediated by any authority. That is a necessary condition uh, of being a Gnostic, but it's not sufficient mm. um, to classify uh, that person or their worldview as um, Gnostic. In and why not sufficient? I think that, you know, we have to admit that there are certain defining characteristics of Gnosticism uh, which allow us to classify it as a historical phenomenon at all. Mm -hmm. um, despite the fact that Gnosticism is probably the most internally diverse religious movement in human history, there are some themes and 
symbols and ideas that cut across uh, basically every Gnostic sect that's arisen in various parts of the ancient world. And uh, what are some of those themes? One is the Demiurge. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, another is, is the idea of archons, who are rulers over this world. And a third is the idea of uh, Sophia uh, as a fallen being. And mm-hmm. these are, we can go into each one of these, I think. Well, very... well, I suppose one of the themes that runs through all of these is that the, the spiritual hierarchy, uh, the Demiurge, the Archons, Sophia, are all considered flawed in some respect. Yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm. Uh, even in the case of Sophia, although I kind of hesitated because Sophia is flawed in a different way mm-hmm. from the Demiurge and uh, the um, Archons mm-hmm. who act in service of the Demiurge. Yeah. The, the Demiurge, you know, is an idea that goes back to Plato and Plato's Timaeus. And so there are uh, precedents for Gnosticism, ideas that arose earlier and, and uh, evolved into Gnosticism but weren't yet uh, what we would call Gnosticism. Yes, and uh, two important precedents um, of Gnosticism, two proto-Gnostic ideas that you see in Plato, uh, they're closely related, are the ideas of the Demiurge and the idea of this world as a prison. Mm-hmm. And uh, the idea of the Demiurge is expressed by Plato in the Timaeus, where he talks about a world-building deity mm-hmm. who looks to the... Um, immaterial uh, archetypes or forms and does the best that he can to shape chaotic um, matter uh, with a view to these forms. Mm -hmm. And because the nature of matter, uh, or hule in Greek, is inherently chaotic, he can only ever approximate to the perfection of the forms. Right. So the physical world is an inherently flawed world. Mm-hmm. And this myth in Timaeus also suggests that there are some definite limits on the power of the creator. Mm-hmm. Um, but there isn't a sense in Plato, as there is later when the Gnostics appropriate this idea, that this botched world uh, is the product of a malevolent or sadistic god. It's just that there are limits on the capability of oh. God. So the idea of a malevolent God comes up in Gnosticism. Yeah, and th- this other idea of Plato's that's uh, adopted and adapted by the Gnostics um, is one that does imply on some level a certain ma- malevolence uh, in terms of... Uh, superhuman controlling powers at work in the world. And that's the idea that we meet with in the allegory of the cave in Plato's Republic, Mm -hmm. that you have these people who are uh, chained inside of a cave and their restraints are such that they can only face a cave wall in front of them. Mm -hmm. And uh, above and behind them, there are a group of people who are um, manipulating uh, mock-ups, statues and uh, mock-ups of various physical objects in front of a fire. Mm-hmm. And so the shadow of these objects is cast onto the cave wall. And that's all that the prisoners ever see. They see a world of shadows. Right. And there's this um, man who's who's uh, gotten free of his shackles, and he attempts to liberate the other prisoners mm-hmm. because he has escaped to the world above, and he's seen that these uh, mock-ups are... Um, a second order reality. They're mm-hmm. a simulacrum. And the idea of simulacrum, a simulacra, uh, 
and of our entire world as a simulacrum mm -hmm. is one that's developed in Gnosticism mm -hmm. and has its origin in uh, this allegory of the cave and the Republic. Now, the archons, the malevolent world rulers who in Gnosticism wind up being the angelic powers in the service of the demiurge god, these are the people who are holding the mock-ups mm -hmm. in the allegory of the cave in Plato's Republic. Yeah. It's a proto-Gnostic vision of the archons, the people who uh, Paul in one of his letters refers to as the powers and principalities that govern this world. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess it's fair to say that Gnosticism basically arose as a Christian heresy. It did arise as a Christian heresy. I think that's definitely fair to say, although it appropriated these elements of pagan culture um, and, uh, and, and not only elements of Greek culture, another huge influence on, well, on Christianity in general, mm -hmm. but especially the Gnostic form of Christianity yeah. is Zoroastrianism mm -hmm. uh, and the idea in particular of a struggle between uh, two deities, a benevolent, uh, true God mm -hmm. and a malevolent, deceptive um, and... Uh, diabolically manipulative evil god, mm -hmm. a lord of darkness and, and deceit, namely Ahriman. Mm -hmm. Now, we did talk in a, a prior interview about uh, the idea that even the uh, benevolent uh, god of light, Ahura Mazda, in Zoroastrianism, at least in one version, is, is considered imperfect. Uh, limited in his power. Uh -huh. uh, imperfect only in the sense of being limited in his power. It's not a, a conception of an omnipotent God. Uh, but one thing that really differentiates Zoroastrianism from the Gnosticism that is influenced by it is that in Zoroastrianism, um, Ahura Mazda's creation is a... Um, it's not seen as a flawed creation. It's seen as a beautiful... Uh, flourishing um, life force that's yeah. in a state of evolution. Uh -huh. And it is under assault mm -hmm. by the demonic powers of Ahriman and mm -hmm. by people who embody the Ahrimanic spirit, people mm -hmm. who promulgate lies and are engaged in sadistic manipulation and so forth. But it's not as if this world is the creation of such entities. Mm -hmm. Whereas once the Gnostics adopt the Platonic idea of the creation of the world by the Demiurge and they fuse it with you know, the idea that this world is the world of shadows in the, in the allegory mm -hmm. of the cave. Then uh, the Zoroastrian theology is transformed in such a way that this world itself is a fallen world. It's, it's not just a botched job, it's a sick joke. Okay. And um, you see this really in Mani, who is coming out of the Persian culture. He's coming out of a Zoroastrian background. But he also refers to himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And what happens with Mani, who, although he grew up in a uh, Zoroastrian culture, the culture of late Parthian, early Sasanian Iran. What, what date would that be? Uh, about in the 200s AD. Mm -hmm. uh, so in the mid-200s AD, 3rd th century AD, mm -hmm. um, Mani was actually from a Parthian royal family. And then later, as the Sasanians rose to power, he found a patron in the Sasanian emperor Shapur I. Which, just as a side note, is really interesting because Shapur was possibly the greatest conqueror in the entire history of the Sasanian Empire. Uh -huh. And as part of his teaching, Mani, who referred to himself as Apostle of Jesus Christ, preached pacifism mm. and uh, no direct uh, struggle against 
uh, political injustice. And so it's, it's interesting to imagine that a tremendously successful military conqueror who brought Rome to its knees embraced monarchism and backed money in promulgating this message through the Silk Route mm -hmm. as far to the east as China. Uh, and, and in that regard, it's also really important to point out that Mani accepted and um, integrated certain elements of the teaching of Gautama Buddha mm -hmm. into his world religion. So Gnosticism is the most cosmopolitan uh, religious movement in history as well, because it's a movement where on the one hand you have uh, Zoroastrian ideas being synthesized with Gnostic Christianity, and on the other hand, the assimilation even of certain core elements of Buddhism mm -hmm. uh, into this um, worldview. But you're also suggesting here that the pacifism associated with uh, this branch of Gnosticism was used as a tool by a conquering emperor. I think that I, I don't want to go too much into this because then it gets us into you know the imperial politics of, of uh, Sasanian Iran. Yeah. But to, to, to make a very long story short, I think what was going on is that Shapur, who had a very good chance at defeating the Roman Empire, mm -hmm. imagined that he would be able to create a world government. Mm -hmm. And once you've pacified the entire world under a single political order, a religion like Manichaeism, which draws from multiple cultures that are part of the vast global empire and also promulgates uh, an attitude of um, peaceful cultivation of wisdom and greater personal mm -hmm. enlightenment, is one that's conducive to social stability. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's my guess of what was in his mind. Uh, now, on the other hand, the Catholic Church made a point of uh, exterminating Gnosticism as much as they could. Yeah, and that's relevant to Mani as well, because the Catholic Church repeatedly tried to exterminate Gnosticism. The first attempt was when, uh, you know, within a century of Constantine's institutionalization of the Catholic Church, you had a severe crackdown on the Gnostics of Alexandria. Mm -hmm. uh, this is contemporaneous with, you know, the this, this skinning of Hypatia and the burning of the Library of Alexandria. Alexandria was the hub of um, the Western branch of Gnosticism. Mm -hmm. and, and Hypatia was considered a, a great philosophical teacher, a female, who, who uh, attracted the enmity of uh, the bishops, the Catholic bishops in Alexandria. And although she herself is not accurately describable as a Gnostic, there were many powerful Gnostic women at the time. Um, for example, I mean, there were, there were women who were sent by the Carpocratians, the Order of Carpocrates in Alexandria, to go and promulgate Gnosticism in Rome. We have records of that. Mm -hmm. um, and so the Catholic Church cracked down on Gnosticism in Alexandria, tried to eradicate it, consigned their scriptures to flames. Mm -hmm. um, we'll talk about how, you know, a cache of those was preserved in a cave in Nag Hammadi uh -huh. in Egypt. Uh, but then Gnosticism because it, it survived in the East in the form of Manichaeism, later spread back into Europe mm -hmm. via Bulgaria, via the Bogomil movement in Bulgaria, and eventually wound up uh, forming a stronghold in the south of France, in the region known as Occitan, where the Cathars represented a medieval form of uh, Western Gnosticism. Mm -hmm. And the entire uh, 
persecutory apparatus of the Holy Inquisition was created by the Catholic Church in the first instance to wipe out the Cathars. The primary objective of the Inquisition was the destruction of the Cathar Gnostics, uh, and then only later was it applied uh, mm-hmm. to Jews and, and uh, other Christian mm-hmm. heretics and Muslims. So in, in the Christian world, uh, at least, Gnosticism was almost completely wiped out. After a long struggle, mm-hmm. uh, after repeated crackdowns by the Catholic Church, it survived more continuously in the Persian Empire, where um, I would say the most significant episode in all of Gnostic history took place, and that's when uh, in the reign of uh, Kavod in the 500s AD, mm-hmm. uh, in the 6th century, a Persian emperor actually endorses a Gnostic doctrine as the basis of uh, state policy. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, the doctrine of Mazdak. Yes. So people have speculated about what exactly the relationship uh, is between Mazdak and his teaching, Mazdakism, and the earlier teaching of Mani and Manichaeism, because mm-hmm. there are a number of significant differences. And one is that Mani was an ascetic, and as I suggested, he was a pacifist, uh, whereas Mazdakism is a libertine doctrine, mm-hmm. like, like the doctrine of Carpocrates in Alexandria. It's a mm-hmm. libertine form of Gnosticism. The idea being that what are considered sinful, deviant behaviors uh, are nothing of the kind because this entire world is corrupt. And so, um, you know, to be fixated on maintaining purity in this world is a delusion that one needs to be divested of mm-hmm. in order to transcend the fallen condition of uh, life. I see, I life see there's earth. sort of a hint of tantric uh, practice there. Yeah, and I, I would say that there's a very interesting comparison to be drawn between Gnosticism and Tantra. One of the major differences, though, is that, you know, in, in Tantra, um, there's the idea that uh, the world is a world of power. Mm-hmm. Uh, Shakti is the main concept. And so the idea is to to be able to increase one's own power, including and especially on a spiritual level, mm-hmm. to attain siddhis, mm-hmm. uh, superpowers of right. a sort. Mm-hmm. Whereas in Gnosticism, uh, it's not that that's discouraged, that human empowerment and spiritual development is discouraged, but there's the very definite idea that the most powerful beings in the cosmos are utterly corrupt. Mm. And so this notion that, you know, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely is in a way very Gnostic. I see. Uh, so th- that makes it particularly striking that a Persian emperor like Kavad would endorse um, a Gnostic teaching mm-hmm. as the basis of state policy, including economic policy. And, you know, this led to the, the abolition of, of monogamous marriage and the erosion of the institution of the family. Mm-hmm. And these people got away with uh, running the Sasanian state for 30 years, mm-hmm. a whole generation. And I think the only reason it was put down in the end was because the elite, the priestly elite and the aristocratic elite, realized that it had a lot of traction with the population and that unless some very definite measures were taken to um, contain it, Mm -hmm. uh, it would wind up um, destroying the traditional society of the time. Well, I think um, you've suggested to me in a, a prior conversation that it was this 
growth of Gnosticism, the Mazdakian uh, movement that sort of uh, created a very fertile ground for the uh, Muslim invasion. Uh, yes, um, I think that's true. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I also think that it's true that uh, it was the wellspring for Persian Sufism. Mm-hmm. And um, we know that pockets of strongest resistance against the Arab conquest of Iran came from Mazdakite communities in uh, northern Iran on the, on the coast of the Caspian Sea in Mazandaran and also in Azerbaijan, particularly the movement of Babak Khurramdin in Azerbaijan. These were Mazdakites mm-hmm. who were trying to revive Mazdakism as a force of resistance against the caliphate's occupation of Iran. Mm-hmm. And, uh, in fact, a lot of our reconstruction of that form of Gnosticism comes from observing these communities in Iran in the first couple of hundred years after the Muslim mm-hmm. conquest. Uh, and what happened is that effectively, these, as we've discussed in another interview, they were defeated politically and militarily. So they adopted the cloak of, they, they donned the cloak of Islam and uh, concealed their teaching in, in a mm-hmm. superficially Islamic form. And that became the basis of Persian Sufism and uh, ver- various uh, doctrines like the doctrine of illumination in the context of uh, Islamic mysticism mm-hmm. that have survived down to this day. And I also got a sense that some of the Gnostic concepts that we've been discussing <clears throat> worked their way into medieval uh, Kabbalah. I wouldn't be surprised if that's the case. Mm-hmm. The uh, idea that this world is a prison. And, and you had mm-hmm. mentioned to me, you know, the idea that um, that in, in this realm, uh, our souls are fragmented mm-hmm. and that uh, we are parts of uh, souls that are more integral and whole on the spiritual plane, yeah. that that idea found its way into Kabbalah. Yeah. And that's certainly a... A Gnostic idea that you find both in Alexandrian Gnosticism, there's this idea of the syzygies or that, you know, spiritual twins um, are part of a larger whole that Mm -hmm. they need to reintegrate into. Mm -hmm. And you also find it in Manichaeism Mm -hmm. uh, with the idea that there are more people incarnated in the world now than there are celestial archetypes of ourselves. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, we would need to find some way to... Um, destroy the illusion of, of division uh, into distinct uh, personalities. Yeah. Now, we talked earlier about Hypatia, who was by some people considered a Gnostic teacher, but I understand she was also regarded as a Neoplatonist. Hypatia was not a Gnostic. Okay. She was a Neo, and it's important to make these distinctions mm-hmm. because actually, in fact, Hypatia was an anti-Gnostic uh-huh. because she was the leader of the entire Neoplatonic establishment of the time. Is quite a feat. I mean, this is a woman who, in contemporary terms, would be like the president of Harvard, Yale, and Princeton and all the leading scientific research institutions of the mm-hmm. world. Unbelievable. This is what was destroyed by the Catholic who Church. Who was skinned alive. Yeah. Uh, and burned as a, as a witch, as mm-hmm. first great witch burning of Christian history. Mm-hmm. But the, you're saying that the Neoplatonists were quite distinct from yes, the Yes, and it's important why they were distinct. So the, the most significant Neoplatonist is uh, Plotinus, mm-hmm. and um, Hypatia comes after Plotinus. Mm-hmm. And uh, Plotinus's form of Neoplatonism, which was written in Greek, you know, in the, in the Eastern Roman Empire, is, is what she represented, okay, mm-hmm. in academia. And Plotinus wrote a whole treatise against the Gnostics. Oh. It's literally called Against the Gnostics. I see. And his problem with the Gnostics in a nutshell, to oversimplify it, is that they consider this world 
the product of malevolence and um, as a corruption that's cut off from the source of being. Mm -hmm. Whereas in the Neoplatonist understanding of the cosmos, there's a gradation of being. Yes. So our world is um, is not as substantial, not as pure and ideal and perfect as the archetypal realm, mm -hmm. but there's a gradation of being down from the archetypal realm through some kind of supersensuous reality uh, all the way uh, to the level of our material reality. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's a kind of chain of being. So, so it's not like this world is totally evil and corrupt. No, and it certainly isn't a prison that was designed by malevolent deity as far as the Neoplatonist is yeah. concerned. Okay. It, it's, a, it's a state of being that we can transcend through the cultivation of our reason uh, and the development of our rational mm -hmm. faculties. Okay. Whereas the Gnostics really have a sense that we have been cut off from the true God, from the source of being, by malevolent entities and agencies, mm -hmm. these archons, who are acting in the service of uh, the Demiurge, mm -hmm. who is a false god. And there's also, as we mentioned earlier, the sense that Sophia, or divine wisdom, has fallen into this uh, corrupted realm. Mm -hmm. And so Sophia herself, divine wisdom, is in need of resurrection and restoration mm -hmm. to her proper place mm -hmm. in unity with the uh, principle of yeah. being. Well, let's talk about the uh, findings at Nag Hammadi, uh, the Gnostic Gospels uh, and so on that have been recovered and how that has impacted our modern culture. Yeah. Uh, interestingly, in 1945, a very traumatic year when the two atomic bombs were dropped on Japan and, uh, you know, we came out of the cauldron of the Second World War, uh, this cache of uh, Gnostic scriptures um, was discovered in a cave in uh, Nag Hammadi in Egypt, mm -hmm. uh, and by, by some local wandering around that area mm -hmm. uh, outside the metropolitan sphere. And um, so ever since the translation of these scriptures, which took some time, took a few decades to make its way into the public sphere, there's been a tremendous... Uh, interest in Gnosticism and a revival of Gnostic ideas in literature and in film. Mm -hmm. And in particular, uh, I think the uh, writings of Philip K. Dick and the uh, film adaptations of them are uh, really crystallized visions of the Gnostic cosmos. I see. Now, I recently uh, did an interview on science fiction, and uh, Thomas Lombardo, if I remember correctly, said that, you know, many people would describe Philip K. Dick as a brilliant writer, but basically psychotic. I don't agree with that. Okay. I would describe him as a quintessential Gnostic. Mm-hmm. And um, whether or not that worldview is ultimately... Uh, one that's convincing to you. I think that there are a lot of good reasons for seeing the world in those terms. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, his vision, particularly toward the end of his life, of this uh, valis, this vast active living intelligence system, mm -hmm. uh, is profoundly Gnostic. And what's really uh, extraordinary about it that would bring someone to conclude that Philip K. Dick was psychotic is that he claimed that a lot of the novels he had written over the decades before that were really um, memories of 
alternate worlds that are not elsewhere. They are earlier versions of this world, mm -hmm. which were corrected by a benevolent uh, deity who is like a Gnostic savior. And he encounters her uh, on one occasion in, in a sort of quasi-physical form, in a spectral form. Mm -hmm. And it's a woman, you mm -hmm. know, and... Uh, he claims that this vast active uh, living intelligence system, Valis, uh, is attempting to rewrite human history in a way that's less um, horrific mm -hmm. uh, and, and thereby counteracting the attempt of the archons mm -hmm. to manipulate and, and oppress humanity. So, for example, he talks about a world where, you know, Richard Nixon remained president and the United States became a police state. Mm -hmm. And he has memories of this world. And he claimed that, you know, his, his novel, Flow My Tears, a Policeman, said, was written based on fragmentary memories uh, that had survived the deletion of that earlier version mm -hmm. of reality. Mm -hmm. So he literally believed that. He did. And that's when a lot of people thought he went off the deep end. He gave a talk at a sci-fi conference in France in 1977 where he said, we're living in a simulacrum. We are living in a programmed reality. Mm -hmm. And there is a force trying to break through the programming mm -hmm. uh, with the programmers being the archons. Yeah. There's a force trying to break through the programming and um, help us to rewrite our world in a way that's more conducive to human spiritual development. Well, let me jump back for a second, because the original Gnostics considered themselves Christians. Did they see the figure of Christ as also being like a, a redeemer from this evil realm of the archons? Absolutely. Yeah. So the Gnostics begin by reinterpreting the biblical tradition. And their interpretation of the Genesis story is that the serpent is the hero. Mm -hmm. The serpent is offering us uh, knowledge and uh, self-understanding. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I mean, I, I, I really, frankly, don't see any other interpretation, you know, of the Genesis story. Yeah. It's very clearly stated that the reason we're expelled from Eden by the gods, and it's not God, the correct translation from the Hebrew is the gods. Mm -hmm. Jehovah is just Adonai Elohim. He's the chief of the gods. Yes. Elohim is a plural. Mm -hmm. And so these are the archons, and they've got us in some kind of a garden, and we are tilling the soil for God. We're workers in the garden for God, and we don't know we're naked, uh, because nakedness in the ancient world was a sign of slavery. Slave laborers worked naked. Mm. Uh, and so this is actually, a, it, it's not that we're ashamed that we're you know, nude. We're ashamed that we're slaves yeah. once we have our eyes opened by the fruit of knowledge offered to us by the serpent. So the serpent is a liberator figure. Mm -hmm. And we're b banished from Eden by the Elohim, by what the Gnostics call the archons, because they are afraid that if we also eat of the tree of life, we will be equal unto them and there is nothing that they can do against us yes. at that point. Mm -hmm. It's very clearly stated in Genesis. You're right. Your interpretation is pretty literal. Yeah, and that's the Gnostic interpretation. Mm -hmm. So uh, they saw It's this understandable that the Catholic Church would consider this a horrible heresy. Yes. Um, and so the Gnostics see Christ as uh, a, an incarnation of the same salvific force that you see in the serpent mm. in Eden. I see. I see, I see. So, back to Philip K. Dick and the modern revival of Gnosticism. Uh, I gather that it, uh, it can be found uh, not just in uh, Western culture, but even in uh, Japanese anime. 
Yeah, uh, you know, Gnosticism was already making its way into Asia uh, with the spread of Manichaeism along the Silk Route, mm -hmm. but it didn't find a lot of traction in China. Um, interestingly, a lot of the Manichaean texts that we have left are from China, uh, but it never became a significant belief system. Mm -hmm. But with the rediscovery of the Nag Hammadi Library and the infusion of Gnosticism into popular culture, uh, we've seen that it's been uh, embraced by some of the vanguard sci-fi writers in Japan, particularly in the medium of manga and anime. Mm -hmm. And Neon Genesis Evangelion in particular, uh, I think is it's a Gnostic gospel. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, Evangelion itself, you know, yeah. is the term for, for the gospel. It's the new gospel. Um, uh, the gospel of the new Genesis. And uh, it lays out this whole scheme whereby, you know, uh, a post-apocalyptic earth is being controlled by a cabal of um, almost superhuman uh, rulers. Mm -hmm. And um, there's this one guy uh, who is a, a political figure in Japan, Gendo Ikari, who is part of this cabal, but he is actually an infiltrator, and he's trying to undermine them by working with them mm -hmm. and to um, stave off the uh, the final apocalyptic turn of events mm -hmm. whereby, you know, uh, angels would descend on this earth uh, at the bidding of the demiurge and uh, basically uh, devastate humanity. Mm -hmm. So he, he considers it his task to hold back the apocalypse. Uh, but there's a, a deeply spiritual dimension to this whole story where, you know, you see the attempt of the human spirit to uh, transform the world at a fundamental level and um, outthink the archons and uh, imagine a a more beautiful reality than the one that they've created for us to, to bring about a sort of alchemical transformation of this world. Mm -hmm. So it's not the case in Gnosticism that this world uh, should be purely negated or surmounted and rejected in the favor of a completely different world. You do find that in yeah. certain Gnostic sects, but in certain other ones, you find uh, the, the idea that this world could be somehow radically alchemically transformed into... Um, the pleroma mm -hmm. or um, super mundane reality, I and I think that's that's the vision that Philip K. Dick had with uh -huh. Dallas and the idea that the there is a divine invasion of Sophia into this world in order to uh, redeem it by transforming it. Well, Jason, what a journey this has been! Uh, I've under, come to understand Gnosticism in a much deeper way thanks to this conversation. Thank you, Jeffrey. It's been a pleasure. I appreciate you being with me very much. And thank you for being with us.